Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. In his new book, Apocalyptic Anxiety, Religion, Science, and America's Obsession with the End of the World, out from University Press of Colorado, Anthony Avini explores why Americans take millennial claims seriously, where and how end-of-the-world predictions emerge, how they develop within a broader historical framework, and what we can learn from doomsday predictions of the past. In his book, Professor Vini places these seemingly never-ending stories, The World's End, in the context of American history and explores the deep historical and cultural roots of America's voracious appetite for apocalypse. Anthony Navini is Russell Colgate, a distinguished university professor of astronomy, anthropology, and Native American studies at Colgate University. He's researched and written about Maya astronomy for more than four decades. He was named U.S. National Professor of the Year and has been awarded the H.P. Nicholson Medal for Excellence in Research in Mesoamerican Studies by Harvard's Peabody Museum. He's author of uh, several books, and he joins us now for, for the hour. Professor Vini, thank you. Delighted to be here, Tom. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, so very interesting, and uh, I'll have you uh, cite some uh, examples from popular culture. I, th- I think we could all name some. It, it just it, it, you say in the book, this is just accelerating. I want to start with something I found in the Urban Dictionary, um, a, a, a phrase called apocalypse anxiety. You have several examples in your book how you do that, but let me read this. This is uh, by this particular entry in the Urban Dictionary is by Cyber Robotic. Uh, uh, who says, apocalypse anxiety is a psychological or physiological state of anxiety that has recently developed, and this this uh, post was made in June of 2011, developed in society which has created feelings of fear, worry, uneasiness, and dread due to an overabundance of media being produced with end-of-the-world themes, all pointing to apocalypse or deadly transformation of the world as we know it on December 21st, 2012. People suffering from this anxiety start to lose interest or hope for their future, which oftentimes leads to doomed outlook for success or even losing interest in success itself, for that matter, because they feel it all be in vain. And then uh, Cyber Robotic provides an example. My brother Tony says he's not going to bother with college once he graduates high school this year because he's sure the world's going to end next year. I think he's suffering from apocalypse anxiety after his three-day YouTube binge on 2012 videos. Um, and you, you cite some examples. It's just really, really impactful. A lot of young people apparently were affected by this, this whole, uh, the doomsday predictions of uh, December 21st, 2012. I wonder if you could read me some of those from page four of your yes, book. Yes, I can. Uh, and I think, I didn't know this entry, but uh, I'd even say at this point, uh, maybe given the terrorism, uh, all the acts of terror that have occurred, and of course the media having maybe something to do with raising our awareness of it, uh, you know, following on the heels of 9-11 and uh, the millennium itself and the Maya f- factor in 2012, I'd almost suggest we're in a, in a period of apocalyptic overload uh, to this point. But you're touching here on some quotes that I uh, do um, include in my book, which got me into whole, all this business in the first place. I'm trained in science, and I'm a Maya specialist, so what business do I have writing about the end of the world? Uh, It was a high school student from Canada who convinced me of this by turning me on to these quotes, which I I would like to read to you. Um, He um, got in touch with me and said, I and my friends are really worried about this end of the world. Uh, What's going to happen? This was back in 2006-07, and already the 2012 Maya end of the world, December the 21st, 2012, when the a long count cycle of 5,000 years of the Maya was about to overturn. Uh, there, there was a lot of attention given to this, and I didn't pay much attention to, uh, well, a high school student, uh, maybe, maybe he was just putting me on, until he continued to badger me and send me these, um, uh, these emails showing um, uh, young people being quite afraid of this. And uh, one of them, for example, is, I'm a 12-year-old boy, the moon, moon hasn't been rising this past week, the sun was rising and setting in different places, I'm freaked, my parents don't believe me, I can't focus on my schoolwork, please tell me the truth about the end. So here's a young boy connecting there's something he saw in the sky or that didn't seem right to him connecting with the end of the world. The one that really got to me was uh, one from a young uh, girl in, in her teens who actually contemplated suicide. And um, these come off of a NASA website called Ask an Astrobiologist. They're dated to 2012, just before the uh, Maya overturn. If you could honestly tell me where there is no danger, I'm quoting whatsoever to Earth on December 21, 2012, 
that would make me feel a lot better because sometimes I think suicide would help. Wow. So you're, you're uh, and other quotes if you want me to continue. Uh, I mean, there are many, many of them. Yeah, yeah maybe a couple, uh, maybe a couple more. Yeah, got my attention, and I thought, mm-hmm. and finally, uh, my uh, my young Canadian student Dylan Dylan O'Quan is his name, and I de- dedicated the book to him. Ended up dedicating not this book, but the previous book that I wrote called The End of Time, the Maya Mystery of 2012, which led to apocalyptic anxiety. Uh, I um, I ended up uh, doing more research on this. Uh, and found that there is this almost kind of this undergrowth of, of a kind of a subculture uh, that is very, very much freaked by these these um, uh, ideas that uh, that the world is suddenly going to come to an end. I did surveys going all the way back in the 80s, looked them up, and uh, and uh, the pretty steady 50% of American people believe the world is going to come to an end uh, fairly soon, uh, one out of six or seven. Uh, within our lifetime. We'll see the end of the world within our lifetime. Uh, you know, I can't get over it, writes a 15-year-old. I'm terrified of these rumors. Uh, every little noise I heard, I thought something was happening. I wouldn't watch the news for fear of seeing something bad or scary. I am 17 years old, and I actually did contemplate suicide mm. because of all the rumors. Um, and that's really what got me into doing the, the original book, The End of Time, where I ended up coming to the conclusion that the Maya don't don't say that the world's going to come to an end. They believe that time is cyclic. And uh, I tried to show that our beliefs in the end of the world, the American beliefs particularly, come out of a, a deeply uh, embedded uh, faith uh, in, a, in a second coming or a destruction of the world or a battle between good and evil. And I might add, I'm not interested in uh, talking about whether uh, uh, these things are true or not true. Uh, I want to try to understand what it is that motivates people to think this way. So I'm not a debunker. You know, there were 3,400 books written about 2012, uh, a handful of them being the debunking book, and then, of course, a large number being about how to prepare for it. Uh, But once I uh, wrote that book, I got interested in exploring the American roots of this anxiety further, and that's really what apocalyptic anxiety is about. It's a history mm-hmm. book, as you correctly note. Yeah, yeah, this this has, um, you know, the attitude could be, and I think oftentimes people roll their eyes, oh, you know, another kooky theory, but I wanted to, to, to have you read some of those because it does have real-world consequences, especially among the among the young, but potentially. Um, so uh, you, you, the the title is very interesting, Apocalyptic Anxiety, subtitle, Religion, Science, and America's Obsession with the End of the World. Uh, you talk about uh, how there, there is a tension between religion and, uh, and science, and uh, the, the religion being uh, truth by coming to uh, understanding of truth, as you know it, by revelation, science yeah. being truth by reason. And, and you say you definitely come down on one of those sides, being science, but you, 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 as you just said, you don't want to necessarily debunk. You're putting this in historical context. That's what I'm trying to do, Tom, and uh, and I am. I, I confess that I am trained in science, uh, and uh, so my my attitude tends to be that the way I seek truth is through a kind of convergence of fact. That is to say, fact that can be corroborated and re-corroborated. That's not easy to do, and sometimes the outcome is dismal. I mean, if you follow global warming and you believe in the science of global warming, that's pretty dismal. A kind of a, a, a prospect, uh, and I think it, uh, you might say it's much more appealing uh, to imagine that that doesn't exist, uh, or maybe to look for evidence that it doesn't exist. I, I myself tend to believe the science. Now, someone might see me as being dogmatic, dogmatically scientific, and not wanting to believe uh, anything other than science, but that's my way of knowing, uh, and that way of knowing is is through uh, the, what I call the convergence of uh, experiential fact. Now, with Revelation, I think you have a truth that is acquired uh, uh, by, an, uh, by an entirely different means. Uh, it, is, it is revealed truth. You tap into it. Uh, you can find it if you look for it. Uh, and uh, I think uh, there is this shared past that many uh, of us possess, that there is uh, divine wisdom in the world, uh, and that we can recover it in the presence by studying the 
the stories of the ancients, the accounts that come to us from the Bible and from other sources. And I, uh, I respect that belief. Uh, I disagree with it, but I respect it. And I want to put it into the context of the debate between science and religion in America, which really goes back a long way, uh, really all the way back into the, the middle of the uh, 18th century during a time known as the, uh, the Great Awakening. And here I have to paraphrase, uh, uh, just before I talk about that a little bit, that here uh, uh, you have this idea of the ending of the world, this apocalyptic ending, whether it be a bliss-out or a blow-up, I mean, whether it be catastrophic, uh, that is to say, a blow-up, the end of the world by annihilation, or uh, whether it be uh, an elevation to a higher plane of existence, is, is almost exclusively American. Uh, the French don't care much about this, and there are surveys that have been done. The Russians seem to sympathize with us. They, that is to say, they have a lot of fear about the end of the world. But you don't see this prevalent in most other cultures of the world. It begins in America. Uh, I, I demonstrate by following the historical literature. It actually goes back to the time of Columbus. Uh, Columbus? Who, wow. Uh, saw himself uh, as... Uh, you know, we always say Columbus is the discoverer of America, uh, but, uh, and of course, uh, you could say he was, at least he discovered uh, America for, to, to, to uh, as far as a, a European civilization was concerned. But he writes in his diary, of the new heaven and the new earth which the Lord made, and of which St. John writes in the Apocalypse, and here he refers to the Bible, he made me the messenger and he showed me the way. So Columbus sees himself as a person who comes to the New World um, to find the place, to prepare that place for the arrival of the city of Zion, as the coming of the second coming of Jesus. Uh, and he fully believes when he's navigating on his fourth voyage down in the southern uh, Caribbean near the coast of South America, when he looks up at the falls, you know, coming down from the mountains, he really believes he's looking up toward paradise, and this is where paradise exists. So it starts with Columbus, uh, and it continues with the Puritans and the Great Awakening and other phenomena we can talk about. But it's very much a characteristic of American exceptionalism, exceptionalism to believe in an imminent end of the world. I think that's my historical mm. point. Yeah, that surprises me. I, I, and maybe I'm <laughs> very American and being quite insular in that, uh, that you know, we, 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 I guess the average American tends to think that uh, the way it is in America is the, you know, the way it is around the world. So, so this is, with the exception maybe of Russia, this, the rest of the world doesn't worry so much about the end of the world. They don't really buy so much into it. Britain doesn't. Russia doesn't. Uh, but, of course, the apocalyptic uh, idea is with us in all cultures. I mean, it's with us in, in China and other places, but not to the extent that it is here. Um, and, again, following the... Uh, American history, and I'm not a historian, I mean, I'm a scientist, but I, I tend to uh, try to, to, to deal with problems by tapping into other areas of knowledge uh, and other scholars who, who make this their expertise, but um, you do have these uh, un, unusual happenings in America. The Puritans, for example, um, come to America to be able to practice their own religious beliefs, to, to be able to we might say, to lay out and act out their, uh, their ideas about their versions of the Second Coming, because they were uh, radicals, uh, that is, they were opposed to the Anglican Church, and they thought that maybe coming to the New World uh, would be a better place to practice their religion, uh, which they did. And then the creme de la creme of those radicals, that is, the ones who settled in New England and cities like Hartford and Boston and New Haven, uh, the ones who were the most radical of those Puritans moved out um, along the, uh, the newly built uh, Erie Canal, uh, 1820, uh, give or take, uh, to uh, an even safer haven for diverse religious groups to practice their beliefs. Uh, and, and they headed out to, uh, well, the, the place where I live, which is upstate New York. Uh, I live only uh, five miles from where Joseph Smith lived before he moved mm. to Palmyra, mm -hmm. uh, founding the Mormon religion, and then, of course, moved on to Kirtland, Ohio, and then to Nauvoo, Illinois, and finally to your neck of the woods out in Salt Lake. So that uh, uh, Mormon religion uh, originated um, uh, out of a... Uh, distaste on the part of some religious people for 
the status quo. So they were really uh, out on, on, on a limb at that time. Who would have thought uh, that, uh, that Mormonism would develop into, uh, uh, well, a, a, a profound uh, American-based religion? But it starts in, um, with the, uh, these people who you might call radical, radical sects in those times, who moved ever farther west to the free space and the frontier where they could practice their beliefs. And it's out of this, uh, this fervor, uh, particularly in upstate New York where I live, and I don't think I'd have gotten interested in this problem if I didn't live there, where you had the foundation of some very fundamental uh, beliefs in the end of the world. Uh, I contrast uh, December 21, 2012, the so-called Maya end of the world, which we can talk about if we want, with an event uh, that took place on October 22, 1844, which was the date for the prediction of the end of the world by um, Pastor William Miller, um, whose predictions would ultimately end up, uh, that is to say, that is whose followers uh, ended up uh, establishing the Seventh-day Adventist Church. It's a fact I didn't know until after I wrote the Maya book, The End of Time, the Maya Mystery of 2012, which I wrote in 2009, that I got into the, the Millerism. And it's really interesting to contrast 19th century American apocalypticism with 21st century. I find a lot of parallels there. Let's uh, let's take a break. When we come back, I want to uh, dive more into to the Millerites and this uh, prediction of October 22nd, 1844, as the second advent of Christ didn't happen. And uh, after the break, I'll have you talk about how followers of William Miller, how William Miller himself handled that, because it, it happens over and over again, get into talking about cognitive dissonance as well. And and I do want to link up to the, to the, the Maya predictions by some of the Maya um, based end of the world, December 21st, uh, 2012. There are some parallels, as you say, more following the break. This is Management Minute by Professor Scott Hammond. One of the best skills a leader can develop is the ability to ask questions. Not questions with an implied solution, but neutral, non-judgmental questions that show respect for employee commitment. For example, why is that important? What would our customers think? Why are you committed to this course of action? How does that make you feel? There is no judgment in these questions, just honest curiosity that assumes the employee is committed and gives the employee respect. The Management Minute is brought to you by our members and the USU Shingo MBA program at the John M. Huntsman School of Business a 15-month graduate degree for executives giving knowledge and skills to leverage the principles and tools of lean, continuous improvement. Huntsman.usu.edu Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Cafe Ibis, 52 Federal Avenue in downtown Logan. Passionate about supporting sustainable and restorative food to help promote a healthy community. Information at CafeIbis.com. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Have with me uh, for the hour Anthony Avini. He's Russell Colgate, Distinguished University Professor of Astronomy at Anthropology and Native American Studies at Colgate University, author of several books. His new book is called Apocalyptic Anxiety, Religion, Science, and America's Obsession with the End of the World. It's out from University Press of uh, Colorado. In it, Professor Avini places uh, a seemingly uh, never-ending stream of stories about the world's end, at least in America, in the context of American history explores the deep historical and cultural roots of America's voracious appetite for apocalypse. Uh, so, Professor Vini, we, uh, you, you uh, began telling a story of the Millerites and William Miller. Um, this uh, became uh, pretty big. First of all, I, I think he, in the 1830s or so, he started predicting the end of the world based on biblical calculations for 1843, and then he moved it to, finally, October 22nd, 1844. Uh, and, and there are stories you, you recount in the book of uh, people dressing in their white ascension robes and going out to the country. One family apparently got in uh, laundry baskets, I guess, to, to better be able to, to be uh, taken up in, in, in the rapture. Of course, the, nothing happened. So Miller and his followers, what, what do they do? How do they explain this? Yeah, 
Uh, well, Miller was a number cruncher. I have to give the background of it, and he uh, he believed that the word, the word of the Bible, was really uh, uh, numerically based. And uh, if you follow, uh, for example, in the Book of Numbers, it says, "According to the number of days, each day you shall bear your guilt, namely forty years." So the idea is you equate the days to the years, and he does this long uh, calculation, um, which we don't have time to go through. But he follows all the mathematics, and he, and he comes out with 1843 as the day for the end of the world. Uh, and he's absolutely convinced it's going to happen, and he organizes these camping tent meetings. I mean, the, 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 the under the, being under the tent was like being on the Internet in those days. Um, and he managed to have all of his sites for his prophetic messages uh, close to where the railroad ran. And, uh, you know, he had some good marketing agents. Uh, and... Um, when it didn't happen, you know, people went out with fully garbed, ready to. They gave up their their possessions. They stood on their rooftops, waiting for the uh, uh, Jesus to descend, and it didn't happen. And what uh, often happens with the prophets who do these kinds of calculations is, they, well, maybe I made a mistake. And so he and his cohorts went back and did some recalculating, came up with another date, and uh, and of course that didn't happen. Uh, and the day uh, following uh, October 22, 1844, was called the, great, the Day of the Great Disappointment. Uh, and Miller uh, secluded himself, and only then could he address his followers after considerable thought when he said, well, you know, we've got to wait. He says, quote, we must patiently wait the time in dispute before we can honestly confess we are wrong in time. And I think this case very well parallels uh, the case of the, uh, the, you may remember, the preacher out in California who uh, predicted the end of the world uh, in 2011 and recalculated and recalculated, and there were billboards announcing, you know, the new date and then the next date and the next date. And uh, and this idea of recalculating, resetting the date, is uh, part of what I think um, psychologists refer to as a cognitive dissonance. Um, cognitive dissonance happens, you know, when when opinions or beliefs don't fit together and it doesn't work out, it's inconsistent. The classic example is a cigarette smoker, for example, who who, who thinks smoking is bad for his health, is convinced of it, but, but his opinion is dissonant with the knowledge uh, that's consonant when he continues to smoke. For example, well, smoking relaxes me, you know, and I can uh, ease the tension that comes with the cognitive dissonance by looking for new information that will increase the the existing consonants. And smoking is cool. It gives me higher status among those with whom I associate. At least that was common uh, when this example was used. Or you can disregard or diminish the importance of whatever uh, thoughts might increase dissonance. My parents, for example, they lived in their 90s. Why should I worry? I've got good genes. Well, this gets applied to these devout Millerites who still share the belief that uh, that Jesus would appear uh, and they're bolstered by the support of the fellowship and the social movement. So they conduct their activities. You could say they, 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 they enclose themselves, or like the ostrich sticking his head in the sand, and they just deal with it with whatever's consonant uh, and not pay any attention to what's dissonant. And how many of us do that? I mean, mm-hmm. it's, our, it's our habit to do mm-hmm. that. I was interested that one of the things, and this is not only with the Millerites, but with others, uh, once the prediction does not happen, one way you can solve this uh, e- or ease the cognitive dissonance is to reinterpret what actually was supposed to have happened. Right, Tom. That's, and that's what the Millerites did. Uh, and the way they reinterpreted it was, at least that the followers of Miller took this up, that, uh, well, the, uh, the end of the world is, is imminent, but it's not as imminent as we thought it was going to be. And that uh, ends up being the at least the creed of the Seventh-day Adventist Church when it was established uh, in the 1850s, 1860s, uh, and uh, one still clings to the belief that, yeah, the end's going to happen, and we've got to purify ourselves, we've got to perfect ourselves, we've got to uh, uh, seek absolution of, of, of our sins, uh, and so on. So these beliefs, uh, it's really interesting, I think, Tom, that um, at least I found, and I think uh, most historians agree, that the, the way the, the whole belief system was conducted in the 1840s with Millerism, which is a case I'm using here, is not so different from the 
Maya version of the end of time and the, the leading up to 2012. Yeah, tell tell us about the about that. Of course, you're the so you you got roped into all this, right? You're you're an expert on Mesoamerica and and, and the Mayans, and uh, in fact, archaeoastronomy is a field you helped to. To, yeah, to astronomy or cultural astronomy, mm-hmm. which is about the, uh, you know, again, I say I'm trained as a scientist and astronomer, is the, uh, the understanding of astronomy um, in different cultures of the world, ancient and modern, no, not just Western scientific high-tech astronomy. And so we're concerned with, the, you know, this is where you cross paths with religion. You know, you can't help but cross paths with religion because many of the beliefs in things that happen in the sky have to do with uh, with the gods and with religion uh and so uh, the, uh getting into this um uh i i um, was so surprised to see the interpretation given in so many books that the maya say the world is going to come to an end um well december the 21st 2012 was indeed the close of the longest cycle of maya timekeeping and I won't have time to give you a lesson in Maya calendrics, but the Maya really thought about deep time. Uh, but their time was cyclic. Uh, it was based on small cycles that built up, build up to bigger and bigger cycles, the grandest of them all being the long count cycle, 5,125 years long, started in, um, way back in um, um, 3,113 B.C., on August the 13th, as a matter of fact. I mean, that's how accurately they pinpointed this, and would end on December the 21st, 2012. The cycle, however, is a historical one. It's not based on anything astronomical or cataclysmic that happens in the heavens. And I think most important of all is that if you talk to indigenous Maya people who know the religion, and if you read the indigenous Maya texts, of which there are some extant, they say nothing about the world coming to an end. In fact, I talked to a one of the Maya prophets um, uh, who said to me, you know, you, what is it about you gringos <laughs> that, that makes you so intense about the end of the world? Uh, we're not worried about it. We'll just take care of it in the next cycle. We'll seek a better world and we'll uh, hope for peace and we'll just try to build a better world. And I think what's, what's happening here in this Maya phenomenon, at least as I wrote in my book on the end of time, is that you have a, a, a mixing together of long-term timekeeping with the uh, biblical uh, notion of there being an end to time. And our culture in the West is the only one, really, in the Christian West, which uh, advocates a termination in time. In other words, time is, uh, is a one-way path. There'll never be another 1492. There'll never be another 1968. Uh, and there'll never be another today. Uh, but it goes forward like a bead on a string, if you will. And, of course, it goes uphill. Uh, that, that string, uh, that path is directed uphill because we move toward uh, the day of reckoning, when the world will come to an end, uh, and then you will have, uh, according to Revelation, you will have uh, a tribulation where good and evil will undergo this, this battle, you know, the, 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 uh, the God and uh, the, uh, and uh, Jesus and Satan, they will they will have it on, and then there will be the rapture and the carrying away, literally the lifting up and carrying away uh, of the believer uh, into an eternal afterworld, and that's the end of time. And I think what we did here in, in America is, is the prophets of 2012 overlaid that linear view of time with a definite endpoint onto a Maya myth that has nothing to do with the end of the world. So you, and I'm thinking about this, this Maya phenomenon, which is you know just one in a long string of end of the world predictions, um, and you say that these are just accelerating as we we go along. So uh, you're getting these, or you're you, you get this correspondence from this uh, this teenager in Canada, and then you become aware of of uh, you know how this is affecting potentially dangerously affecting young people. Is at that point. Was your purpose to debunk? Did you did you, you set out to debunk and, and reassure these young people that no, this is not going to happen? Well, I, I all I could do to be as unbiased as I could is to try to say, look, I know something about the Maya world and Maya prophecy, and this is what I believe the Maya are telling us. 
I think that you can make a lot of enemies by debunking, and I think one of the problems with science writing, popular science writing, is that, and you said it at the outset, they tend to roll their eyes uh, at this and say, you know, uh, this is silly, I'm not going to waste my time with it. Well, I think uh, people's beliefs are not silly, and, and I think we believe what we believe for for a reason and i think that one of the reasons why we have this apocalyptic overload is because we're living in pretty scary times uh, you know if you take up all the events that have happened i'll be, be just begin with 911 and then all of the other uh, phenomena that take place and i i have to add here the natural phenomena that occur and the excessive reportage of the uh, the, the nuclear uh, flare up in japan uh, the tidal waves that take place. I mean, how many times have we seen the videos played and replayed and re-replayed of all of those cars getting washed into the ocean in the in the tsunami that happened with the earthquake? Uh, and, of course, the one in Indonesia. I'm not saying, I, I mean, I think maybe this is a, a, a thing we have about fearing nature. We think we can understand and control nature, and then all of a sudden these events come along and uh, hundreds of lives and thousands of lives are lost, and there's no explanation for it. And so we tend to uh, feel very uncomfortable, very in need of, what can I say, in need of therapy, in need of salvation, uh, in need of uh, somehow uh, assuaging these terrible feelings that we have. This happened only last week in Orlando. I mean, there's people trying to express their feelings about the the impact that one individual can have on... Uh, on a culture, you know, you can do away with so many lives in a short period of time. These, these are scary things. And when we get scared, I think we tend to uh, retreat into uh, trying to, to recover lost wisdom and uh, imagining that there's a, there's a shared past and uh, we can go back to it and there was a wiser world and we've got to recover it and the time is now. So I'm sounding here very fearful, aren't I, when, mm-hmm. I, when I give you that mm-hmm. scenario. And uh, but the the path to it's it's a fairly uh, traumatic path to that past wisdom and, the, and that better time. It, it it goes through a lot of trauma. At least these predictions and the end of world scenarios. It's uh, it, it I guess it's kind of a scary scenario to to match the the scary reality we're living in. Well, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, but I think here you have, in, in some of the prophets that you look at, and I'm not just talking about the prophets of the present day, uh, you know, who talk about what's going to happen and uh, what was going to happen in 2012 didn't happen, but, you know, there are more predictions the end of the world. Uh, I think uh, what this does, whether you're dealing with it now or, or in the 19th century, is it, it gets us down to, uh, you know, the, the whole idea of where religion comes from. And there's a very, opti- I call it an optimistic view of uh, of where religion comes from that that we are basically all by our very nature religious we are we could say not so much homo sapiens as we are homo religiosus uh, that is to say that we all we believe we share in a longing to return to a a primordial condition that was superior to the present day world uh, and we can achieve it here and now in other words we have control of our lives and we can do that uh, there was that that uh, great world that existed before us. Uh, and they believed that in the 1830s as well. And I write a passage where we talk about tapping into secret knowledge, uh, this this lost knowledge, you know, the theory of Atlantis and uh, other hypotheses that relate to this. Uh, but uh, there is this, this notion that uh, uh, during a time when there were a lot of polarized viewpoints, apocalyptic so- social movements, you know, in hard times, um, uh, that uh, that thrived, uh, and uh, and you have that mirrored in the present day world as well. Uh, most anthropologists would dismiss that notion of the what they call the monomyth that there's a shared past based on divine wisdom. They would say, well, religion uh, developed uh, didn't really develop that way at all. Uh, it uh, arose out of a need for societies to to make sense of transcendent forces they don't understand. So, in other words, it developed gradually as part of human evolution. Well, that's not, that's not a very appealing theory, you know. It's, a lot of people don't like evolution because sometimes the outcome doesn't seem to have us in mind. So the optimistic side of all this uh, is that uh, that there are many people who uh, take hold of the belief that, you know, there is a shared 
worldwide shared wisdom, and we just lost it. We've got to get it back. We lost it, and we've got to get it back. Um, that's where the optimism comes in. Let's take another break. When we come back, we'll have more, a concluding segment with Anthony Avini, who is Russell Colgate Distinguished University Professor of Astronomy, Anthropology, and Native American Studies at Colgate University. He's author of uh, several books, and uh, his new book is Apocalyptic Anxiety, Religion, Science, and America's Obsession with the End of the World. It's out from University Press of Colorado. You're welcome to join this conversation if you'd like at 1-800-826-1495, toll-free 1-800-826-1495, or you can reach us by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. When we come back, I want to uh, probe uh, this, part of this is that it's uniquely American. Professor Vini says that uh, America seems to be the the only country in the world that uh, is so obsessed with end-of-the-world scenarios. Talk about that following the break. Welcome to Science by the Slice. USU mathematician Nathan Gear understands challenges his students face as they tackle new math skills because he himself has worked on certain math problems for years. Gear says students get discouraged because they can't solve problems immediately. Getting stuck, he explains, is part of the learning process. To make math more accessible, Gear is developing three to five minute podcasts to acquaint students with new vocabulary and orient them to new material prior to class lectures. His goal is to help students more quickly grasp core messages and make math learning less intimidating. This segment of Science by the Slice is brought to you by the USU College of Science, offering degree programs in mathematics and varied scientific disciplines. Details at usu.edu slash science. True story, June 2001. A 10-year-old girl named Laura Buxton. Hello, I'm Laura Buxton. Let's go of a balloon. That balloon floats 140 miles and lands in the yard of an entirely different girl named Laura Buxton. They're both Laura Buxton? Yeah. No. Yes. Maybe we were meant to meet. Is our world full of magic and meaning? Strange things do happen by chance. Or is it just chance? That's next time on Radio Lab. Join us Tuesday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for joining us for Access U Time. Tom Williams. We're talking with Professor Anthony Avini. He's Russell Colgate Distinguished University Professor of Astronomy, Anthropology, and Native American Studies at Colgate University. And his new book is Apocalyptic Anxiety. It's out from uh, University Press of uh, Colorado. Uh, Professor Vini, uh, you were explaining one explanation for uh, for the uh, Maya uh, phenomenon is this uh, differing uh, understanding of time. Many cultures have a cyclical view of time. Mayans did. Um, in the West, it's a very linear uh, view of time. That's one of the explanations for how these phenomena come up in Western culture. I'm wondering about specifically American culture. It, it, maybe talk more about putting this specifically in American uh, context. The, you said at the beginning of the program, America seems to be the only, only country that, uh, that is so obsessed with the end of time. Well, I think, Tom, we're the most obsessed. And uh, maybe let me, let me give you my little... Uh... A checklist of uh, uh, apocalyptic beliefs that are, and I don't want to say exclusively American, but they're very heavily emphasized in contemporary American culture. And, you know, first, that there is the preoccupation with annihilation, nuclear annihilation. And I have, uh, uh, there's a survey, in the, believe it or not, in the last issue of Vanity Fair, 60 Minutes Vanity Fair poll, uh, in which a nuclear war is the uh, number one fear that will put an end to humanity. Global warming, by the way, is number two. A deadly virus was number three, and in the recent polls, the deadly virus has moved up uh, from the third position. Uh, can you guess why? Mm-hmm. I think you can see here there's, a, there's a, an influence that the, that the media brings to all of this. Uh, but there is the preoccupation with... Uh, uh, let us at least say environmental destruction and other disasters. We're disaster-oriented, uh, uh, and uh, you just look at uh, what you see in, in, in film and even in games, uh, in video games. Second, the crisis is imminent. That's, uh, that's a very American idea, the notion that it's going to happen very soon. Third, um, there is a loss of confidence in American institutions, especially science and government. Uh, and, of course, there is a loss of 
faith in institutions in some European quarters as well. We're experiencing this in France and uh, uh, as well in other countries, so I don't want to say it's exclusive. Uh, fourth, and this is a particularly American notion, is that there are evil conspiracies. Uh, there are conspiracies, that is, is these veiled uh, things that are happening around us that we're not aware of. And finally, the, uh, and I think this is a religious aspect, the yearning for salvation amid a feeling of helplessness in the face of threatening external forces. All of those characteristics are quite American-based. Uh, and I, I guess that checklist you just uh, went down, and you know, I was mentally, you know, checking yes off on all those. Uh, I suppose that's the explanation why predictions of the end of the world uh, in the U.S. are are accelerating. They're they're increasing. Yeah, very much so. Uh, there are some differences, though. I have to point out, between, and you've got to read history here. I think it's so important uh, to read history because you know we we tend not to not to learn the lessons of history. And if you go back to the the 1830s, where I pretty much start, uh, uh, the, um, there are some changes that have happened. The, the 2012 uh, movement was much more secular. Uh, in the 1830s, much more religious. America was more religiously based. Um, and I think I found very interesting uh, that it was very interesting that, uh, that, you know, the wisdom that comes from beyond, this, this secret wisdom that we long to tap into, in the last century, it used to come out of Asia, the wisdom of the India, the wisdom of the, the savants of India, or Egypt even. Then it became the Maya in the 21st century. But the aliens are also present. And um, I'm reminded here of a quote that I am fond of making from uh, a book by Frank Drake, astronomer Frank Drake, who's the head of SETI, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. And he was once asked, you know, what do you think will come of contact with aliens and he said that uh, it will be a new renaissance. We will learn the secret of immortality. We will uh, acquire all kinds of knowledge that we never had before. In other words, they will, be, they will be our saviors. He doesn't say that, but this is the way I interpret it. Uh, do you remember the uh, Heaven's Gate cult mm -hmm. in 1997 yeah. when, uh, when uh, Comet Hale-Bopp occurred, a very bright comet, and there was this group of people who called themselves the Heaven's Gate cult, who believed that the comet was being trailed by a spaceship that was coming, was sent to pick them up, that would take them to paradise. So paradise then, in the 21st century, can be on another planet. It can be in another world. And our savior in the secular world can become the aliens. Hmm. I wonder if you'd, uh, I want to get into uh, uh, something that I've been thinking as we, we recount to many of these things. That is a sense of community. The Millerites, I guess, found a even uh, even though the prediction didn't happen, they found a sense of community, um, and I think that's happened in other instances. Uh, I'm thinking of uh, Marion Keach, you recall. Yes. She's yeah. a, a woman in 1954. Uh, tell me about her. Yeah, well, that that Marion Keach, the case of Marion Keach, I want to find the page because there's a great quote there. Uh, yeah. Uh, see, um, 29, I believe. Yeah, 29. So that's, that's, <laughs> we're reading our book here. I, I was commenting to... Um, uh, your producer before we got on the air is <laughs> when I was interviewed by Fox, they didn't ask me to uh, to go to a page. So I think that's why I like the whole hour to explore things uh, uh, with you. Uh, that was the classic example uh, with uh, with uh, the case of uh, a cosmic dissonance. She believed that um, she and her followers believed that. Yeah, let me see here. Yeah, she had to convince others that the event she predicted, that is to say that the there would be um, a second coming and that would we would be transported, um, that when it didn't happen, she tried to convince uh, herself. That this was, I'm sorry, this was, she was, she, she believed in, in automatic writing coming from extraterrestrials. And the message was, uh, arrived at through decipherment of this automatic writing. She'd go into a trance and she'd write on a slate or on a pad, uh, believing that this, this information was coming from uh, aliens who were uh, telling her that the world was going to come to an end. And that would be on the winter solstice of 1954, so December 21, 1954. Uh, and she became very convinced of these uh, beliefs. Uh, and it was, I think, her passion about convincing others 
that the event would happen uh, uh, that that caused her to redouble her efforts, uh, even when it didn't happen. So, in other words, that uh, this is where people uh, group around a kind of social a set of social interactions to um, uh, deny uh, the fact that the event didn't take place. And I think it's interesting that the 2012 case parallels that. I, I talked to Daniel Pinchbeck, uh, and was co-interviewed with him, in fact, uh, and he still believes, uh, no, the world is still going to come to an end. It may not be as violent an end as he thought. Uh, there may be other aspects to it. Uh, but he surrounds himself with a group. It's not really a religious group, but uh, it's more of a secular group. But he surrounds himself with these believers who continue to insist uh, that, uh, that, in fact, they're correct, and uh, you just need to wait, and you'll see that it's going to happen. Uh, now, uh, of course, those who have studied cogn- cognitive dissonance don't, uh, would, uh, would, uh, would deny that. And and this is I don't know if it's a cause or an impulse for for these predictions, but it, it certainly in many cases is a result, right? The, the a community you right. you, you find is. a community. That's, that's what matters. Yeah. What matters is that, that I've, I'm a member of a community, and we all share a belief. Uh, whether it's true or not may not matter. It's mm-hmm. the idea that we find each other in the, in that belief. We just have a couple minutes left. There's something you wrote in your introduction that uh, really struck me. Um, just this phrase. A fervent need uh, that we have to peer around Times Corner, and that's shared. You say you're, con- you're comparing, contrasting the Millerites from 1844 with the uh, Maya phenomenon of 2012. The need we have to peer around Times Corner. Yeah. Well, you know, don't we want to know what the outcome of all of this terrible uh, uh, terrorism is going to be? I mean, will we resolve this? If only we c- we could look into the future. And, uh, and see what the result would be. Those of us who are optimistic will say, some will say that we'll have better gun legislations. Others will say we'll do more about uh, taking care of the people who are, who are uh, mentally disturbed. I mean, there are all these different, we don't get into the politics of it here, but, but the optimist would say there's a way we can, we can hope that something will happen. Well, the idea of peering around Times Corner, as I call it, which comes from my book on the, uh, the um, uh, Empires of Time book that I wrote, is about the, the being able to see the future. And, you know, if we believe, if there are people who believe that there is this world, this wiser world from the past that we can tap into, we can access it here and now uh, by uh, doing the biblical arithmetic, by um, studying the myths, by listening to the words of the wise men, whether they be from India or from, from uh, the alien world, we'll know it. We can do it. We can act. We can find the future in our own time. Uh, that's a powerful belief uh, to, to uh, get someone to break away from. Uh, and for all I know, it may be true. I have to be as open-minded as I can, even though I'm a, an object, trying to be an objective scientist. So that's what peering around, peering around the corner of time means is, is I wish I could know the future. Uh, well, maybe I can't. Yeah, yeah, but the, but the impulse is, is is always going to be there. We're out of time. Uh, very interesting book, Apocalyptic Anxiety, Religion, Science, and America's Obsession with the End of the World. The author is Professor uh, Anthony Avini. Thanks so much. Appreciate you being well, with thank us. Thank you, Tom, for a great conversation. And I uh, hope you'll join me tomorrow. We're going to be talking uh, about a book called The Future of the Suburban City, Lessons from Sustaining Phoenix. The author of Grady is Grady Gamage, uh, Jr., We'll ask him about record-breaking high temperatures there in Phoenix and across the Southwest and and, and, uh, sustaining uh, cities like Phoenix. That's the conversation tomorrow. Hope you join me then. Thanks for listening today. It's time for Utah StoryCorps, everyday people sharing their stories at the StoryCorps recording booth in Vernal. Husband and wife Ryan McNabb and Jesse Brunson, two competitive bike racers, talk together about how their lives were changed forever one fateful day with a phone call. We were in Washington. I can't remember. It was like some relay race with a bunch of girlfriends. I was like riding around and then someone called me and I think it was it was one of your teammates. I can't remember exactly what he said, but I think he was like, Ryan's been in a bike wreck. He's hurt real bad. You need to get here soon. And I was just like... I didn't believe him because that stuff doesn't happen. And some people walked by me crying, like sitting there next to the car. And 
I said, hey, I need to get hold of my teammates and let them know that, like, I need to get back to Oregon. And I, oh gosh, those poor ladies. <laughs> I was, like, screaming and sobbing in the backseat. And the whole time, people are calling my phone, blowing my phone up. I didn't even know what was wrong with you. Nobody had a very clear story. I couldn't understand what happened. I thought you'd hit a car or a car had hit you and that you'd lost an eyeball because someone said your eye was blown. But what they really meant was your pupil was blown out, meaning that you had a traumatic brain injury. But I didn't know that at the Mm. time. The Silverton Road Race had a downhill finish at the end, and I think it was several laps. As often happened in bike races, there's a big group of people at the finish, and then there ends up being a sprint. And so I think what happened was your group was getting ready to sprint toward the finish, and somebody ran into your tire, into your front wheel, and created a chain reaction, and it resulted in a really big accident. And there were several other people that were injured. You were the worst injury. It was like a big pileup, basically, yeah. near the finish. Apparently, you were going almost 45 miles an hour when it happened. How much time went by before they knew that I'd live? Did they ever think I was going to die or could die? I think that they thought that that was a possibility based on what they saw had happened. But I, I did feel that once I saw you in the hospital that it would be okay. I just didn't know if you were going to be, like, brain damaged, basically, for the rest of our lives. You, you were going to live. It just I didn't know how much function you were going to have. And so then it was a couple of days after the accident when my dad was there. And we were, I remember sitting in the cafeteria and basically saying, yeah, our lives are pretty much ruined now. I don't know what's going to happen. Like, I had all these plans, and now everything's screwed up. And I remember talking about, like, I wanted to have kids. And we wanted to go do all these things, and then that wasn't going to happen. But it turns out. <laughs> yeah, so, like, I made a recovery. There's still some things that I still deal with, obviously. I feel like I made it a game. Every therapy session I went to, try to improve. I think I'd gone through life at that point just kind of thinking that life is pretty good. But after your accident, I think I kind of felt like bad things happen to everyone, and it's just a matter of how you deal with it. At that point, the community support was amazing. You were first injured. You were in the ICU for about a week. They had you under sedation so your brain could rest and heal. But then as you started to become more conscious over time, then you became more difficult to handle. So they moved you out of the ICU. That was so like a week later was when you started to kind of wake up at night and I'd be like trying to hold you down. So that was when our grad school friends started doing what we called night buttressing. They would just be there to like try to help hold you up when you get out of bed and try to keep you in bed. And like they took shifts. It'd take two people at a time. That was the alternative to the hospital like tying you down to the bed or giving you a lot of extra sedation. And I think because of that support, that helped in your recovery. And I felt so much love. That, yeah. Like, it gave me something to, to work for, to repay people the love they gave me to make their effort worth it. Support for this segment of the Utah StoryCorps project is made possible in part by our members and Memory Mark, helping families to preserve and relive precious memories that help keep us connected to the people we love. Information at MemoryMark.com. Next time on Ask Me Another, we play games in Los Angeles with Jeff Goldblum, Micah Monroe, and Weird Al Yankovic, who mashes David Bowie. Just watch me sculpt my mashed potatoes, sculpt my mashed potatoes, I sculpt my mashed potatoes. Join me, Ophira Eisenberg, on NPR's Hour of Puzzles, Word Games, and Trivia. Join us Saturday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Hey, what's up? I'm Shad. Julian Fellows is the creator of the period drama Downton Abbey, and his new novel also looks at British class and history, but it's delivered chapter by chapter through an app. Next time on Q, we'll talk about marrying tradition with technology. That's coming up on Q from PRI, Public Radio International. Today at 1, right here on Utah Public Radio. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan. Thank you for listening to UPR. The time now is 10 o'clock.